this is the first Muso Mental Health podcast, and we're really lucky to have Ronan McManus here from the McManus Dynasty of Musicians. Uh, Ronan is uh, the lead musician of the Bible Code Sundays of the Brand New Zeros and of a load of his own music as well and also just happens to be related to a legendary Joe Loss Orchestra member Ross McManus and also Declan McManus otherwise known as Elvis Costello. How are you doing Ronan? I'm good, how are you? Superb, now that we've got the lighting sorted and we've got... Yeah, the... I was just worried about my lighting, you know. <laughs> the best possible shot to catch you there <laughs> amazing thank you so much for joining on this podcast i'm really excited to be kind of opening this series up and it's lovely to be speaking to somebody um i'm, I'm very happy to be your first victim <laughs> Thanks for that. would you mind just kind of telling the listeners just a bit more about yourself um for those who haven't come across your music or very oddly, uh, your brother's music. Yeah, well, like, well, I'm sure they would have would have heard a McManus at some point in their life. But uh, mm-hmm. yeah, basically, I come from a music a musical family. So my um, my dad, Ross McManus, was um, was in the in, in the Jonas Orchestra, as you said, and they were quite they were very big in their days, 50s and 60s, big band. He was one of the, one of three singers, so he was kind of a quite a, a major part of that. And so he, they did live BBC broadcasts and and some quite big things, um, including the Royal Command performance, where John, John Lennon says, Jangle the Jewelry, that famous quote that he says, but that was on that same show. Um, so he was married twice and had Declan from the first marriage, and then four boys in five years from uh, what I was referred to as, as the second litter. So the four four brothers from the second marriage, we, we, were, we were four boys in five years, all musicians, all grew up playing music together, very much playing the in the Irish tradition when we were younger and that carried on and then we all and we were, we were all in the band together doing our own stuff original music um which was more kind of like squeeze kind of um crowded house kind of stuff and um and we really should never be in a band together to be honest because uh, we, we only that we were brothers other than that we didn't really have anything musically in common really very much at that time um but yeah so <clears throat> I've, we've sort of done, I've done lots of different types of music always concurrently and uh, and I've kept the Brand New, the brand new Zeros was uh, was a side project project off the Bible Code Sundays. The Bible Code Sundays was kind of the, the Irish rock band, London Irish rock, we always call ourselves, and Brand New Zeros sort of started as a side project of that with some Brand New Zero, with some Bible Code members as well, um, uh, but I've had a more of a blues rock feel to it and my own stuff being the kind of depressing singer-songwriter stuff mainly um, and sort of a little sort of social comment and a bit of political kind of stuff that's kind of so they all have their different areas of my life but yeah so that's it I've just done um, done music my whole life and made a living from it as well as writing and uh, and creating my own music at the same time. Brilliant I mean it's it's really interesting being a musician and how it, it comes from quite a family heritage and then you get some other people who have absolutely no experience of music within their family and I think there's kind of uh you know there's pros and cons to both what would you say was the kind of most positive thing for you having such a a massive um family influence when it came to music and would you say there were any negatives to that as well well I mean I was born in 1976 
Declan's first record was 1977. So in my living memory, he's always been famous. You know, he's always been there doing it, being on top of the pops or being on TV shows. So the big, the biggest help that that um, that we had from that is that it always seemed attainable. It didn't seem like a far off dream like it is for some people. Mm. So we had the kind of our own brother. You, you know, we weren't that close, obviously, when we were younger because he was so much older than us. He's like 20 years older than the oldest one of us four. Uh, but it always seemed like it was achievable, that. And my dad, by the time we came around, had he was doing sort of working men's clubs, um, doing day-to-day gigs, gigging covers, uh, you know, in, in not great surroundings, not, not, well, not plush surroundings anyway. And he was out there making a living from it. So we had these two sort of sides to, to our upbringing where we had the original kind of do your own thing, you know, sort of blaze your own trail. And then we had my dad who was teaching us how to make a living out of it. And dad kind of came off the road um, at a, quite a point in time for me. I was kind of about maybe 14 or something, 15, and he stopped gigging. And he was home for the first time. He was away for a lot of our childhood. Just because wow. he, he was, most of his gigs were up north or in Scotland or... He didn't oh, go really? away for two weeks. Yeah, he did. He used to go away for two weeks to Scotland and, and play around all the working men's clubs when there were such things as working men. So he'd be going away and singing, singing to the to those guys, you know, doing his peace and love hippie routine, you know, with strobe lighting and stuff with his with his long hair and his Afghan coats, you know, playing Amazing. to to working working men in the north of England. So he came off the road and was kind of suddenly home, and I think they. Mom and him were making up for a lot of lost time because every night was a party. So every night we'd descend into a sing song and and uh, and that. So we kind of learned a lot about performance and stuff just in the house. There was music coming out of the walls of the house, you know, sure. which was quite exciting at that time. But it wasn't. It was kind of normal for us, you know. We we're all picking up guitars and learning to to write and record and and yeah, we had I basically my old music my old music teacher gave me the four track tape cassette four track recorder to take home one summer and then she said oh you should you should take this home for the summer and work with it and then she left she knew she was leaving so she kind of gifted it to me because it was just gathering dust otherwise you know she knew I'd use it so I kind of ended up with inheriting this thing which I just ended up learning how to record and layer and, and all that kind of stuff so I spent many a summer in my bedroom dressed in black and getting more and more pale as my, my friends were out playing and I was just listening to grunge and uh, and trying to be Eddie Vedder, you know, and trying to be Amazing. Kurt Cobain. <laughs> so, um, so, yeah, but I had this sort of like, this thing of like, well, it wasn't a far off dream, Deck was doing it. So if we wanted to pursue that, we could. And then Dad was like, well, this is how you make a living out of it. And then we kind of started a band quite young. Um, Dad gave us all the tools to do that and that's in literally a, a PA system that he had. Um, a very massive, big, heavy Carlsberg speakers that weighed about two ton each. Proper um, vintage. Proper. Um, so yeah, he sort of gave us this and gave us the tools to actually start the band that got us out of our Sainsbury's day, our Sainsbury's kind of um, you know team job that we were doing. We all basically started the band to get out of that really, and we started playing around our friend's dad's pub. So there's a lot of circumstance, a lot of um, the musical sort of upbringing really gave us everything all the tools we needed and gave us the ambition and the feeling of it not being out of our reach you know so that was that was really the main thing the the, the downside would have been 
trying to write songs and be a songwriter and trying to front a band when your brother is one of the sort of most famous songwriters to come out of this country. Big, big shoes to fill. Um, and, you know, that's, and those comparisons and some, you know, I think also that gave me a bit of complacency. I think when I was younger thinking, right. thinking oh, someone's going to want this or, you know, someone's going to want to sign us. And I don't think I worked hard enough at the right things. I worked hard at the music and the songwriting. I just didn't really work hard at the business side of things, trying to do the right things to get seen. Um, I think part of that, part of that was thinking, that we would be discovered because okay. of who our brother was. It wasn't like, wasn't it? Wasn't an arrogance. It was just a bit of a surely. A bit in my mind, it felt like maybe the common sense would be like someone's gonna 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 un, you know lift this stone and find us underneath it. You know, rather than us getting out from under the stone and actually going and getting going and getting it. So I think there was a little bit of a um, <laughs> look. I'm over here. I can do this yeah. too. Kind of thing. Uh, yeah, it was. I think there was a bit of a kind of. Um, just thought that, that I just think I think I worked at the right side of the right end of it I didn't work at the, the business side of it at all really and didn't think commercially um just I thought artistically and then that's but that's the thing you know there's I think with music certainly from my experience there's an element of luck involved with these kind of things and also there's there's nowhere I mean, these days, I think there's an awful lot more um, availability for training on music business, you know, with people like the Musicians Union, they're running constant seminars, all that kind of thing. But I mean, even for me, uh, coming out of a conservatoire, because I'm classically trained, I can remember that one of the only classes I had in music business was a half an hour lecture on how to manage the finances. That was a half an hour. <laughs> right, exactly, yeah. And then, you know, I was graduating about a month later and going out into the industry to work. And when you actually consider how much of a massive part that is, um, let alone all of the self-promotion and all this kind of thing, and now these days as well with social media and all the pros and cons that come with that, it really is something that you almost kind of have to learn yourself, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, there's so many pitfalls and so many. And these days... <clears throat> record labels aren't developing artists so you're very much you're you're expected to to come out fully formed with an album done even you know and whereas like when when my brother was signed he was he was i think he sent the tape with something like 50 songs on it or something they wow. recorded that he had recorded on a on a little through a little condenser mic or cassette recorder he had and all the sort of things that you were told not to do to approach record labels he did all of those mistakes and but they they saw something in him and developed him and wow. that's and when i started to look at trying to make it you know trying to get trying to get signed it was still the old style music business there were still record deals being given out where you would get signed and get developed and you get put on tour with a bigger band and all that kind of stuff all that's gone now and we've sort of, I've sort of lived through the the exact time in the music business has kind of collapsed in terms of developing artists they just want a sure thing they want a, a, an album that they can stick a bar, barcode on and stick it in the shops you know not even in the shops it's just all online you know and streaming and all those kind of stuff it's all kind of but you, the, all the all the onus is on the artist to be every part of a record label themselves now they've got yes. to be their own manager they've got to be their own promo they've got to be their own you know they've got to do everything themselves and and that that's a big burden on 
on an artistic mind. We're not known as the uh, the, the the best organised uh, sort of race of people musicians, you know. So we're kind of we're not really built that way, you know. Speak for yourself. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like trying to trying to turn trying to get artistic people to take the business side of it is it's, it's not it's not it's not always. I would feel like the music business could end up with people who are kind of okay musicians, but really good PR guys. Oh, rather absolutely. Than, and, and the really good artistic, the really good artists won't make it because they're not, not good at self-promotion. And that's, that's the kind of, that's the, the worry, I think, about the, the future of the business from an artistic point of view. Um, is that's, that's, that's the worry there. But yeah, I mean, there's a lot of pressure on, on, on artists now to, to do all those things that they were never expected to do in the past. Yeah, I mean, I think I think being a musician is such a portfolio career. I mean, that's something that I, I want to kind of look at in multiple different ways whilst doing these podcasts, because so much of what you're doing as a musician is putting yourself into a vulnerable position where you're letting people see inside your head, see inside your heart, what it is that you feel, think, do. You're opening yourself up to criticism. But then on top of that, because you've got to constantly learn and evolve along the way as a musician there's no such thing as getting it right or getting it perfect and if you don't have this wall of people to hide behind um you are so much more available and the criticism i think hurts so much more when it's there and people are kind of forgetting that actually you're a human being like what's been your experience of that with releasing your own music how have you found that type of thing yeah, well, I've in recent in recent years, I really started to write much more personal lyrics. When I was younger, <clears throat> I think I really, <clears throat> sorry, <clears throat> I really hid behind. Um, I think I really hid behind wordplay and sort of, and, I, and now I do a lot of songwriting with young pop artists, and I've got into a lot of that kind of thing, and it's a real challenge to. I used to try to be cryptic on purpose, and I'm trying to sort of teach people to to make sure you make sure what you're trying to say is getting across and I think I kind of hid a lot of my personal um feelings and the re the, the motivations behind songs and the emotions behind it was kind of hidden a lot and I think that and uh, that's that was just a kind of a I suppose it was a kind of a protective shield you know so hide behind the the, the cryptic word wordplay you know when you actually just want to say you know, nothing compares to you or something like that, you know, it was just like such a straightforward line and it's just a, it just, you know, I, I, I didn't, I don't think I had those, those, I don't think I had the bravery to be that vulnerable lyrically. And then recent years I've tried to do that a lot more and I've written about mental health issues I've had and addiction issues I've had and things like that. And I've, I've tried to be a bit more, um, of, you know, a bit more vulnerable, sure. uh, but it's, it is, it is really tough, though, you know, to sort of, you know, <laughs> I released the whole album of kind of songs, you know, morning after, you know, you know, after a lost love, you know, type songs, and it's just, a bit, you know, it's, it is miserable to listen to, <laughs> <laughs> and just sort of go, but you know, for people to point that out is is quite is quite um, hurtful, but yeah, you've got to have such a thick skin. I think being a musician and you know the whole expression of water off a duck's back but 
I mean, no matter how famous you become or how um, accessible you are, there's that always that opportunity for people to kind of look at what you're doing and say, well, I don't like that. And that's the, the beauty and the pain of music being subjective. And Absolutely. You have to be okay with people not liking it. Uh, it's like, it's not going to be for everyone and that's fine. And um, there's a, there was something like might be on social media or something. Said, if you try and make music for everyone, you'll make music for no one. And I quite, so liked, true. I quite liked that, you know, and it's like you just, so I always thought, what did people talk about? They said, just make it, make music for yourself. And that's, you know, and I, and I think it was quite actually when I was in the band with my brothers, I think we spent so long chasing our tail, trying to write something that we thought would be commercially viable, you know, and, um, and that was kind of on, we, we, we did, I went through a period of doing that, just trying to write stuff that we thought would, would be would be popular following trends and all that kind of stuff rather than actually just just writing writing what you'd like and what you try playing to your strengths as well as a big thing so many people write songs they can't sing because they don't they're not writing for their own range or they're not yes. writing for the for the parts of their voice that sound that you know Ed Sheeran always does it you know he's these sorts of guys who are famous they have he wants to make sure he has those moments where he's where he's singing quickly because that's what he does. One of the strengths he has is that kind of rap singing thing that he does. He wants to make sure he has those moments in there. He writes them into his own songs, the bits of his voice that sound good. And it sounds like a very obvious thing to say, but it's, I've spent so long not doing that for my own voice. Right. And you can hear it a lot from, from people just not playing to their strengths. You've got a really nice vibrato and they've got a really nice kind of rasp. It's like, make sure you hit that. Katie Tunstall did it great on the Black Horse and Cherry Tree, you know, which she yes. that 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 bit after all these years. That that's like her voice sounds great when she does that. So she's got that moment in the very first song that people had ever heard of her and on Jules Holland, you know, and that was when her big break was on there. That's almost and, her her brand, and I think like like you say, well, kind of having that distinction that sets you apart from everyone else. I'm interested to know because obviously uh, your brother has such a distinctive vocal tone and I would say probably your dad had something similar as well. Have you ever felt the pressure to kind of emulate that or are you quite comfortable with the vocal kind of quality that you have? What are your what are your thoughts on that? Well, my, my dad had a much more pure voice. I mean, you listen, if you go back to listen to... Um, and if one wants, wants to check out the sort of his stuff, there's, it's on Spotify, you can listen to it all. It's uh, the Joe Lost Plays Glenn Miller album is probably the one where you can, he sings three songs on that. He sings a version of At Last. And it and you've got wow. to bear in mind, one take, you know, that was wow. in those days, it, it was all one take because it was like, that's the way studios worked then. And he did so many budget records that there's, there's an as Elvis's dad sings Elvis who got repackaged as which is an Elvis Presley covers album but that did um and there's but his voice was so pure and Dex was just so different and so unique and so imperfect in a lot of ways um and it was about his delivery and his lyrics and and it was perfect for what he was trying to say and trying to do my my voice was has changed over the years as I got older when I was very young, it was very sweet and kind of a lot more clear and pure. And as I've got older and I've abused my <laughs> my body, um, I've definitely got had a more of a, a rasp in my voice, um, and that's come through a lot more now. And I really like that about my voice now. I really, I, I, so it's, I've kind of landed somewhere between the two. 
I think. Um, my brother Rory has a, has a, a very much uh, a voice very similar to, to Dex, you know, and he does right. and he does great um, harmony. He's a great lead vocalist as well, but he's a great harmony vocalist. So there's a real speciality with singing harmony. But when you hear, they did a, did a gig where we were on a stage with Dex and when he sings harmony to Dex, that's something special, uh, really, wow. like, really similar voice. So um, that brother harmony thing is is uh, he calls us the Macaulay brothers. Dad calls me and Rory the the, the Macaulay brothers. <laughs> so, I, I always call us the Everly brothers. You know, I drank heavily and he smoked heavily. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Good old. But um, yeah, um, I, I my voice has changed over the years, and I think that's just that's through singing more and singing and singing a lot in pubs and above a band you know, playing with a, with a full six piece trad rock band with a lead guitar and a drum kit right up my ass in a, in a, in a, in a pub, you know, you sort of, it tend to oversing a lot, you know, and I think I've kind of, um, I've kind of definitely pushed my voice's limit. So it's gone from being kind of a nice sweet thing to, uh, but I never felt like I needed to sound like deck, although now, People do make the comparison. People do. I think there are moments. There are moments when we. I definitely do sound. There's a definitely similar vocal tone, but it's definitely not by design. I, I mean, it must. Like it must be impossible <laughs> not to not to have similarities there, given the musical heritage that the pair of you will have with yeah. your dad and his influence. I mean, you've only got to read his um, Declan's book to actually see how much of an influence, an early influence, uh, your dad had on his entire musical upbringing. I mean, um, it's such a, such a unique upbringing with you, because know, my dad used to have to learn the, learn the sort of hits today. So when, he, when they did the Radio 1 broadcast, he would, he would be the, the one in the Jodos bands, the, out of the three singers that could do, he was very versatile, so he'd always get the job of learning the hits of the day. So when he was finished with the 45, he'd give it to Deck. So he had this stack of, like as a young boy, stack of, like such a comprehensive record collection, you know, and I don't think those. I think it'd be hard to think how those circumstances could be repeated, you know, ever again, you know. It's I not mean, really the same. Way. Having Spotify now, if you want no, to listen to anything, no. it's just everyone's right there. got everything now in their phone. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah it there. kind of takes the magic and the mystery away from. Oh, <laughs> I can't wait to get my hands on that. I've actually got to wait for it. That actually almost made it more special, right? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I remember going to Woolworths on a bus, and you know, and uh, <laughs> I'm old, I'm old, but yeah, it's uh, it was definitely, yeah. I don't like, don't I, I don't, I tried to avoid the wasn't it great in the old days conversations, but there are certain things that it was, it it was, it was uh, just a bit more, a bit more mystery in that, but yeah, no, but certainly the getting back to the the the, the vocal the thing, I didn't. I don't think I felt the pressure to sound, sound like him, but I think I've got kind of morphed into much more of his his kind of voice. But as I said before, I'd think I'd much rather sound like my dad. Yeah, so sure. it's such a much better voice. <laughs> we were kind of talking about um, music in terms of experience at home, and obviously you said there were music coming out of the the walls of of your house. What kind of formal musical training did you have, if any, or was it just all organic, learned yourself, self taught? I. Um, well, my older brother Kieran, he was the oldest of the of the four. Um, he was he was he's a classically trained pianist and flautist, and then uh, he learned the tin whistle as well. Um, but he was sort of the benchmark for he did formal piano lessons 
okay. when, from when he was young. So I tried to follow him in that and I did formal piano lessons and, and I just didn't really stick at it because I started to then sing and I was much more, I had enough chords on a, a little keyboard and this little keyboard, this and I just played the chords. I, I, did, I had enough chords so I could accompany myself singing and that was all I was really interested in, if I was honest. For anyone and, that can't actually see Ronan doing this, he's just mimicked having a very small keyboard and uh, yeah. playing it in, in a really kind of small way, which is just yeah. hilarious. Please continue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I look like one of the Muppets as I was doing that. There's a little that. bit of Muppet yeah. going on there. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> Sorry, carry but, on. <laughs> but I had, yeah, so I just, so I just, I just really, what I realised I was, I was much more interested in, in singing. And even when I picked up the, the, the guitar in my, in my teens, I was only ever really interested in learning enough chords that I could back myself singing. So that was all I was really ever interested in. I never did any formal guitar lessons. Um, and I wish I had really now, looking back, I wish I had, had a, I wish I was a better guitarist. Um, now I've, I've actually had, a, had a, an arm injury, got knocked off a moped and I broke it and I nearly couldn't play again. I just so I, could, I haven't got very much movement. So um, I can just about play chords now, but I, I wish I'd, wish I'd done more of that when I was younger and, and wish I'd continued with the formal formal music lessons because I I could read music very, very slowly, but I was never really interested in that. Once I started to write songs and, and sing songs and then and I just I was then studying the structure of of songs and, and how they how lyrics are put together and, and obviously having my brother's music as a kind of a we got given so obviously free copies of all his albums as they came out as they came out so listening back to all his old things and and you know the, the lyrics there there was obviously that's his main thing is, is lyrics so i've developed a real love for for lyrics and and um so yeah i just i kind of got more into the creative process rather than the formal training and didn't really have the discipline and the concentration for that especially then when we started gigging around 16 um it was then about performing to crowds and sure. getting getting the reaction and enjoying that thing of getting a crowd going and that moment which you get in in folk music especially but i was these these were irish gigs i started doing where you where the whole place goes silent when you're singing a really nice slow ballad and and that that moment was that those sort of moments were just so addictive for me as a teenager interesting that you say that actually because i think there's there's so many um different experiences in that moment where you suddenly realize how many people are actually listening to you how would you say that you cope with nerves if any at all um what's your kind of experience of feeling that pressure in that moment is that something you've just used the word addictive is that something that you actually crave when you're performing or is it something that makes you feel quite uncomfortable well, my, fir my first ever gig I did, I was 12 years old. Wow. First, uh, and I just, wasn't a full gig, I just appeared. My dad was singing in the uh, Irish Society do in the local church hall. And he, they, I got dragged off the football pitch out the back. Um, <clears throat> in, <Come> here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my, my mum just grabbed me off the football pitch. I had grass stains down my 80s white jeans. Nice. And I got sort of dragged onto the stage to sing some songs, and I didn't want to go. I was like, I don't want to go, I don't want to go on. But once I sang one song, then he couldn't get me off then. And it was, <laughs> that was what it was always like. It was always the anxiety of the anticipation of getting up there. And, and once 
I once we started gigging, I'd, I'd done that, lots of those appearances over the years, and we'd done a lot of family parties. We were known for our house parties, and so uh, you know, because with the with the Catholic upbringing, upbringing, you get all the sacraments, you get the communions and the confirmations, and you get the baptisms, and you get all that. There's plenty of drinking nights. Any excuse on. for a party, right? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So all those things descended into into gigs, really. All of my all my dad's friends were all musicians or poets or something. So there was a kind of a the you know, the tradition of everyone does something, you know. Everyone does, everyone does a turn. Um, was there was so there think, like an element of um, kind of competition between you and your brothers with that as well, or was it something that you were all quite supportive of each other with because it was such a part of your family? Yeah, I think. <clears throat> I mean, Kieran, because he was the one that could play the piano, was always the accompanier. And I think there was a bit of competition maybe between myself and Rory as the two youngest. And being so close in age, we were like sort of, we, we sort of at times made, make Noel and Liam Gallagher seem like, you know, to, like <laughs> two softies. Um, we definitely uh, had our fair share of arguments and, uh, and fights over the years. But, and I think there was definitely a, a bit of, a bit of, healthy and unhealthy rivalry going on there but um we i, I always <clears throat> always liked it when we sang together really we, we always sound the best and the best together i think and i think we started doing that really in our team sort of you know doing harmonies together and that then became really um something that was really sort of magical to us i think Absolutely. um and but i think by the time we got to the point where we were gigging in the pubs I think we were quite used to gigging and quite used to performing to people. And I think we sort of were quite confident at that point. And I think <clears throat> discovering, discovering Guinness, I think, helped. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I think I think I certainly had far too many pints of Guinness over, over the years in those days. But um, no, I, I mean, think we had a... You know, part of being London Irish, right? Uh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. But it was um, no, yeah. I think I think by the time we came to gig, and I think we were, I was confident enough not to get too nervous. It was only when we started doing original gigs that I really was anxiety would really start to hit. Then, and I would really be um, be nervous about how I was coming across because I think it was what you were saying before about the vulnerability and giving that piece of yourself before I'm singing Irish songs. I know that I know it's songs they know. I know it's songs they really like. So there's a kind of a a comfort in that you know you kind of know you're falling back on something that is going to go down well whereas when you're doing your own stuff then it's really putting yourself out there you know what would you say your your highest point has been with your own music and then counter to that what's been the lowest point with your own music and i mean that's um, making you vulnerable now making you answer a question yeah like that, but i'm intrigued i think the two two moments that come to spring to mind with the highest moments were probably the pinnacle of the Bible codes was either playing with Dropkick Murphys in the House of Blues on St. Patrick's Day. That was pretty amazing. Incredible. Um, and then playing on the pitch at Celtic Park the night the Celtic beat Barcelona. Um, <laughs> so that was, that was quite a major thing to play to 60,000 people um, with Lionel Messi warming up behind you. Nice. That's quite that's quite a, an amazing amazing thing, um, and uh, but and but on a personal sort of family level, we did a gig with uh, Declan at, in Kew Gardens back in twenty fourteen, two 
2014, I think it was. We just got back from myself and Rory had written an album together. As our after our parents died in 2012, we kind of started. We hadn't really spoken very much. We kind of had a bit of a break from each other for a number of years, and and so we got back together to write some songs together, and um, that was really nice. So we wrote. We 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 ended up writing um, an album's worth of the most depressing songs about our dead parents. But it was really important for us to address that with each other, and and kind of that was an important thing. Then we got invited to go to Brazil um, during the World Cup out there. A friend of ours lived out there, and he was like, and load of load of musicians got invited out there by the British consulate, and he had one pick as it was his idea, and he chose us. So we went out there. We thought. We can't go to the home of Samba during the Football World Cup with a depressing album. So we, we wrote another album about, which is a much more, much more upbeat and much more sort of fun. Um, so once, so releasing that was kind of quite, that was quite, it was called, and we called it Elephant in the Room, which is quite apt about the, um, you know, the, the sort of argument, the thing that we'd addressed between the two of us, really. Sure. Coming back from that, we ended up playing at Kew Gardens with, uh, with, with Deck. Um, uh, on a lovely summer's evening, um, when Larkin Poe were on the gig as well. So, um, so it was, we all ended up on the stage together at the end, and it was like beautiful Kew Gardens with all these like blankets out and all these lovely people drinking, you know, Prosecco and nice bottles of wine and having, having picnics. And uh, it was all very, it was beautiful, but it was a real kind of, it was in, in a place near where we'd, where we'd grown up. Although we hadn't quite grown up in such a posh, we were down the other end of, the, of it. But uh, <laughs> still, still Twickenham is always nice, you know. But I'm not sure. going to say we were in the slums, but um, but it was a you know, particularly beautiful part of uh, of the world that we we were all on the stage together, and it was a real nice, real nice moment. So that was one of our sort of highs. <clears throat> and then what a high to have as well. I mean, what an absolute yeah. variety of of performances to have and moments to have with people you care about as well that's so important absolutely i i always say that the cv looks straight and the bank account doesn't match you know it's like, <laughs> story you of a musician's life well i think we'll probably would you know we do kew gardens you know one night or the next night i'm in my local pub again you know playing to two people and a dog you know so uh, <laughs> it's, it's, that's 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 what it's like isn't it so we've um, all been there <laughs> <laughs> And then I think the, the lowest point was um, was in 2017, um, I decided to stop drinking. Um, I got to quite a bad place with that. And a month after that, um, a month into my sobriety, our drummer died. Um, so Carlton from the Bible Codes, he was also the drummer in the Brand New Zeros and drummed on anything I ever did. Um, with my solo stuff he was just he, he had played with bad manners and the joke was he had played with everybody over the years you know and um he was a real sort of gig horse you know he was only 54 i think Gosh. um um and i was actually with him when he actually died he's he's because he had a, a kind of an accident he was kind of in a coma for a little while whilst i worked out whether there was any brain function and there, there wasn't and the oh switch the machine and um we all sort of took shifts turns to be with him happened to be on mine um so that's one of the biggest honors of my life to be there at that moment um and then i stayed in the bat in the bible codes for another year or so 
and uh, my mental health was getting worse and worse and worse. I was battling trying to stay sober. Um, and also I'd, I'd had so many great nights drinking with the, with, with the, with the band, you know, they were still drinking and I wasn't. And it was like, I was liking it to imagine getting divorced, but still having to live in the same house as your ex-wife. It's a bit like that, you know? <laughs> so I was sort of like, I really wanted to join in, but I couldn't. And then I was just really, it was really, I was really struggling. So I ended up basically, um, about a year, um, later kind of, um, I ended up having to leave the band to get my trying to get my head sorted, and I was at that point, um, you know, working out whether it was worth even staying alive. At that point, I was all sorts of dark thoughts going through my head. So um, yeah, that was a kind of a, a mixture of mental health addic- uh, struggles, addiction struggles, and obviously loss of uh, of someone that I'd seen nearly every day of my life for for something like 12 or 13 years we've been doing the bible codes together and it was um it was uh a real tough tough thing to try to that's quite a trauma to to have gone through as well to be there when when somebody you cared about so much passed away yeah but i was what i was able to kind of my sobriety gave me a bit of an emotional stability at first which which I was able to actually speak it through knowledge and I never thought I'd, I'd ever be able to do. Um, and uh, I was, I felt like I was kind of at first the strong one. And then I kind of crumbled over the, the course of the following year with everything that was going on with trying to stay sober and everything. Um, but that was, a, it was, yeah, I mean, that was probably my, the lowest point um, and trying and basically having to shelve We'd literally just released the Bible Code Sunday's album. There's someone called Walk Like Kings, which was gonna which was gonna be our last album anyway. Um, you know, we just hadn't planned on putting such a big full stop at the end of that one. But um we had all get all guest sites on there. We had we had a song that um called Willie Rebbins Volunteers about the Irish soldiers in the First World War, which my granddad was one. Um it was a poem written by my dad that I put to music and we had all five brothers, including Declan on that song and my dad's voice um, reciting something he'd, he'd done for a school project of my older brother Kieran's like years and years previous he'd read out the letter informing the HQ of my granddad's wounding in Ypres and my dad read it out in his kind of like British Army officer kind of voice I found a recording of it from a camcorder really bad quality but it was we put an effect on it made it sound like a an old radio or something and that to have that moment which is kind of special real special track and we had russell crowe singing singing a song on the album and that's a particularly personal song written about my, my parents and um so he was on it we had matt mcmanaman from the dead 60s who scouts out there might might remember those guys from the from the turn from the around the 2000 early 2000s um and our friend Lorraine O'Reilly and Ellie O'Keefe and all these friends of ours, we had this, all these guest artists on the, on on this album, and then literally launched it in about two three weeks later. Carlton died, so that that got shelved. We'd started making a new brand new Zeros album, and that got shelved. I had found recordings that I'd done of guide tracks to his drums. I'd done a year, almost a year to the day before he died. I still haven't, I just still haven't brought myself to look at and. One of them actually ended up on the Brand New Zeros album, which we ended up finishing eventually 
in 2020, just in time for the pandemic. Uh, oh, great, great timing, yeah. <laughs> so he's um, the song, song called Human Kindness, which um, which actually, I don't know if you can, if this is, because it ever does the video, there's, there's a, what makes the world go round is human kindness, is the lyrics from it. I put on the thing. Well, it's, it's, on, it's on the wall behind me for those, for the benefit of the tape. You know, you're taking the food out of their mouths. Do you know you're taking the heat out of their house? Is compassion just a fashion that's fading out? But I'll tell you. Found. It's not the dollar or the pound What makes the world go around is human kindness What makes the world go around is human kindness So, you know, artistically everything we were doing just got shelved because we were just went on survival mode. And we ended up gigging the next day after he died because it was a charity gig for the air ambulance in Luton. And we decided we couldn't let them down. So we, he would want us to gig, so we gigged. And then we kept going. So we actually, in true tribute to, uh, to such a workhorse of a man, uh, we carried on gigging from the day after he died right through. And, and I don't know whether long-term that was a good thing or not. At the time, we felt like it was dealing with it. Maybe we, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe we need, we did, we need a bit more time to come to terms with things, but I don't know. I mean, lucky enough, our guitarist at the time also was a drummer, so he just switched to drums and knew all the songs, so it was easy for us to do. Um, sure. But I was, mean, I think, I think being a musician, um, going into survival mode is actually quite a common thing, and um, all of those kind of feelings sometimes it's actually more beneficial to channel them into performance or into music yeah um that's yeah. I've, I've spoken to quite a few people who have felt that that's the way that they have dealt with uh, their emotions that i had a similar feeling when my dad died because i lost my dad when i was 15 and i just went into survival mode at that age focusing on either schoolwork or the concerts that i was doing or the music school that i was attending or any of those things and it yeah. was only when all of that stopped, it really hit me. And I started to kind of process all of that. Um, and I think back now, was that the right thing to do at the time? But if that's what your brain needs in order to survive. Yes. Did you find that, did you find there was a mixture of moments? I certainly found there was a mixture of moments where sometimes I was literally just going through the emotions and I was somewhere else mentally. And sometimes I was so focused on what I was doing that it was really emotionally tough but it wasn't one thing or the other all the time if you know what I mean sometimes oh, I was zoned absolutely. out and just going through the emotions sometimes I was so in the moment it was painful yeah and I think I think that's something I feel as a musician in general I always commit a hundred percent to what it is that I'm doing because you've got that performance face that you can put on um you know i am now laura the performer as opposed to laura the person and part of that's yeah. a shield for me that's how i kind of cope with however i'm feeling at the time um i try to be as authentic as i possibly can be but i'm also very aware that sometimes my mental health isn't always in the place where i feel like i'm able to be as open as i always am uh, i tend to wear my heart on my sleeve uh as a person generally 
So yeah. I need to kind of use the gigs that I do to take me out of myself and improve on how I'm feeling. So I would say that's kind of how I cope in those moments. What would you say it, it's yeah. for you? Well, yeah, exactly. I think I definitely agree with, with that. I think there's definitely um, massive elements of that. But I think there's, I think there's one thing that we've, I know we've spoken, we've spoken about this before is this, this, everybody has a work life, a work person, a work persona and a light and a, a home persona, right? a work and non-work everyone has that kind of game face and then that kind of their home person i think in, in with, with performing musicians and i suppose stage actors and the similar thing in comedians any sort of performing um job i think those two people are much more extreme and it's and that's the highs and the lows can be so and the on stage and off stage can it's it's you know, I think everyone has it to a certain extent in their life, but I feel like in the in with performers it's it's just to, it's so much more to the extreme to the point where it's it's duplicitous and mm-hmm. especially if you're if you're playing if you're at the level where as much as any level really but I was gonna say what I was gonna say is if you're at the level where you're playing weddings and parties and that kind of thing it's somebody's special that is somebody's biggest day of their life mm-hmm. that you're it's that and you're part of your role is to entertain them in that and when you're at sort of my, my brother's level um like the you know like paying to those people who have paid a lot of money and it's that might be their their big night out of the of, of the year or the, the month or whatever this it's it's an occasion for someone and it's just another day's work for you and that to, I, I i always feel the the weight of that and I think to my detriment that I always try and treat every gig like it's somebody's special night. And I always give 110%. I don't know how to, to sing at 50%. Some people say they know how to do this. I, don't, I haven't discovered it. I'm interested I'm always how all you or see nothing. That's, that's to your detriment to be all or nothing because, yeah. I think it can be damaging. I think it can take a lot physically out of you. You know, I've never been able to sort of work on 50% like some some people do and say, oh, I just, I just, I'm just boxing clever and I can, I can sort of sing a bit. And I've never been able to do that. And I think sometimes giving your all has a negative come down. Yes. Um, I think, <clears throat> but I don't know if there's any, I don't, I don't, I don't know any other way of I'm not just saying it to sound like, no, I'm, no. Aren't, I, aren't I great? Just, that's just the way that I, the way that I work is I just have to give everything or else I just don't, there's no point. And I feel you like I'm. Don't feel also, sincere. And it's but it's, it's also it's also being feeling like you're worth the money that they're paying you, because often if you're you know if you're playing at a pub, they've got to make that money over the bar, and you know and they, you got you got to feel like you got to be worth the money that they're paying you. And then if it's coming out of someone's pocket, it's even worse. If you're doing like a private party and someone's paying, you know whatever the money is. Um, you know, and and you get to the point where I've been doing it for nearly thirty years, so I'm I'm not cheap. I'm not cheap like I used, <laughs> not cheap as I used to be. Um, not with the not with the price of petrol at the moment, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, but that I don't don't. I mean, you just I just feel like there's there's the, you the balance between knowing your worth, so not underselling yourself, and then not ripping people off, but also making sure that you're worth every penny that you charge. And I always 
feel that it's almost a guilt before I've even sang a note that I, I, I feel like I've got this responsibility to to give them the best night that I possibly can. And that's before and, you even consider the fact that you're sharing something incredibly personal in your own music. Like that's a lot of weight yeah. to carry around, isn't it? I mean, yeah, I mean, this is for me, this, this is, this is more the covers gigs, this stuff. That's what I do. I mean, with the original, with the original stuff, I unfortunately never quite reached the heights where it's somebody's special night and they're coming to see me. Uh, there's never, never quite, never quite reached those, those heights. Uh, I don't think. Uh, maybe with Bible Codes, you've done a few big gigs with that, but I just feel like, you know, um, we never, never, we've never sort of really hit those sort of levels where they're really paying big money for tickets, you know. But that's but, um, interesting that you say that. I'm going to challenge that by actually saying, you know, if if every penny that somebody pays to come and see you means something, then yeah, define okay. define what a big gig actually is, because those people obviously believe enough in you to have bought the ticket, to have turned up at the gig, to have stood there. Yeah, I mean, I suppose I'm comparing myself to like I'm doing the thing that I always said myself with my, with my brother who's, who does exactly who does the Royal Abbott Hall you know which uh, you know when, but the, the the big ticketed things we've done with the Bible codes have been have been great nights and I, I still um I put so much importance on those in terms of us as a band because I feel like it's you know it's we've we've sort of become the cultural night out for for people who of London in London of Irish descent and our second city, we did, or did a lot of stuff in Glasgow. It was actually, we've done some great gigs up in Glasgow. And, that doesn't and, uh, remotely surprise me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Turns out there's a few Irish people in Glasgow. But there's, uh, but yeah, there's a, that, that sort of, it becomes a cultural night out in the way that the Saw Doctors did that, the Pogues did that in London. You know, uh, we, all our friends would get, would put on their, their green clothes or their, their county shirt or their whatever it was, you know, their island shirts. And they go to the gig and it's a cultural night out for them. We've sort of we're sort of that now for the London Irish culture, and uh, I love that. I love you know um, the fact that we found out after the pandemic all these suddenly all these young people coming to our gigs. He's obviously they're the same age as my son, you know. So my oldest son's eighteen, you know, nearly. So they realise it's their parents that are listening to us, and they've handed it on, handed passed it down, and then they they're coming out as a celebration of their of their Irishness to see us and we're the people that represent that and that's that's fantastic and it's you know that's it's really uh validating sure to sort of feel like we've maybe achieved something um so what know, would what would your advice be having kind of come through all these different kind of musical experiences what would your advice be to somebody starting out now within the the band industry in particular what would you advise well, the, me to someone who's not quite sure where to start or where the ground lies, particularly post-COVID as well? Because I think a lot of things have changed even in those two years in how the music industry's run. Absolutely. And it's really, I, I would, one thing I would say would, is not to rush into releasing things onto Spotify because you can self-release now. Um, I People rush into that to too quickly I feel like but get in because you can just record in your bedroom and stick it onto digital services you know I was one thing I'd say you know try, try manage your own your own development and get some advice from people who you trust um people who um you know 
try, just people who you, yeah, I'd say try and get some advice and try and work work with some songwriters and try and work with some producers. There will be people that will work with that will work for nothing. Um, that's the big thing is is being able to afford to do everything these days. Mm-hmm. You have to afford your own studio. You have to. No one's going to pay for that unless you're, you know, plucked out of the air by some rich benefactor that wants to put some money into you. But it's very unlikely, um, or very it's not unlikely. It's very it's very rare that's that that happens. So, just be be aware of your own development and try to. That's I'm talking about some of the business side of things. Artistically, you've got to really enjoy what you're what you're playing. You've got to really enjoy enjoy music don't worry too much about trying to make it or trying to make money out of it at first that's that's i think that's something that comes a little bit later but first just just get in a band with your mates and just just be shit for a while sorry <laughs> <laughs> i love don't that be, don't be afraid to be to just to be a bit crap for a while you know just enjoy yourselves and play the music that you really want to make don't play something you know don't find your own sound don't just try and be liam gallagher don't be a people cool. pleaser kind of thing yeah yeah exactly just find something that uh, and try and write stuff try to write about stuff that is in your life that you know about that you is your are your experiences that are that are authentic to you that's what i would do i think i you know i know people i know there's country bands here in the uk that sing about pickup trucks and and uh, and it's like you you don't you don't live on a farm in 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 Iowa you know you don't know about you know just sing about what's around you and the people that are around you and then try and make it as as authentic as you possibly can. I think that word authentic is so important um, in a world where, yeah. like you say, if you can literally just fling something up on the internet, it's almost given everyone access to be a musician, a published musician now in a way. Yeah. So I really I really like that. What what are your plans moving forward for your own music before we finish up? What are you what are you thinking? Well, I've I've hit a bit of a um, a crossroads really with all of this stuff. So um, uh, I've had some really great advice recently um, from <laughs> from somebody uh, called Laura. Now it'd be it's um, I've we sort of got back. I, I rejoined the Bible codes a few years back um, just to just to carry on what we took about when I left. I rejoined them after the pandemic because uh, um, uh, they needed a singer, basically, because the guitarist had moved to Ireland. So they needed, so we had this idea of this big emotional reunion and actually it was more practicality. So, so like, we kind of got back together, but we're all kind of doing our own things. It's not, a, there's no commitment to that. We're enjoying doing the gigs that we're doing. But in terms of original music, we don't think we're going to be making any, any more music with that. The Brand New Zero's album is there, um, which is available on Pretzel Records. People want to want to go and check that out. That was released in 2020. We finished it in January 2020. Great timing. Oh, gosh. And so um, I'm going to be doing some gigs uh, to promote that, but it's really going to push in. I'm trying to find a new thing to do. To, I've got lots of songs that I've, I've got. I'm trying to find a new way of, of putting that together, and I think... One of the things I've I've loved doing is the family history. I do. All, I'm uh, referred to in Declan's book as the family detective because uh, I'm the I'm the keeper of all the family history. I'm the one who does all the research. And so and that's you. So that's me. Yeah, the family detective. So I um uh so I really would love to, love to tell the story of the Manus family because it kind of charts the um 
the sort of Irish immigration into UK quite neatly, you know, with our um, with the great granddad coming, coming from Ireland to Bergenis for the docks. He was then killed on a, on a, in a dock accident, and his his wife, who is Elizabeth Costello, that's where he got this Costello name from. <clears throat> she died of TB, orphaning the, the the kids, including my granddad. They all went to an orphanage, then ended up going to the First World War. My granddad got shot in the First World War, then came back. It's like this is it's like all these moments of history. And my dad was kind of of the age where he we actually went. Um, just post Second World War, he turned 18 and, and ended up in Egypt for a few years. Then he ended up moving down to London and being on the radio. And then, then Declan came along and then us four. So there's a kind of a, there's a kind of a, a really kind of interesting family journey. And I've got songs that I've written over the years about all those people and those moments. And, and I think it's just organizing all of that. And I've all, I, I'm, I'm kind of a storyteller by, by trade really is what I do that's what I do the songs that I enjoy singing the most are the ones that, that tell a bit of a story so and as I just said now Irish, Irish tradition I suppose it's gonna rubbed off on me but also if, always... if being authentic is important to you then that is probably mm. the most authentic you can get is to tell the story of your own family yeah and I think it's um I think it would be uh interesting for for, for Costello fans maybe to to hear some of that stuff and I think it would be, it's going to, certainly going to be interesting for me. I, I had kind of started on this road a few years back and I kind of abandoned it because of um, partly I lost, I didn't, you know, a bit of time and the mental health dip and that kind of thing. But then obviously the pandemic got in the way, but I was going to be doing some kind of documentary at one point. There was talk of that. I don't know whether... That'd be amazing. I don't know whether whether that's how feasible that is in terms of costs and that kind of thing. Um, but certainly I, I, I'd like to compile a... Um, a, a bunch of songs that kind of that represent those little moments through the family history and I think there's um there might be something in that I love so, that uh, so yeah that's kind of what I but you know as we've we've been talking um uh over the last few weeks about about all this kind of stuff you've helped me a lot a lot to kind of I was in a bit of a mental health rut if I'm honest and we just you know we sort of connected again um over the last few weeks and really kind of just been chatting loads and it's um it's been great and it's really got me just organizing my head and it's i'm very grateful for that and uh it's great to come on to a podcast talking about because i think mental health issues are such a so prominent in the in the music industry um and it's this so so much of it so so many people struggle with it and there's been so much loss in the, in the in the music industry over the years um through suicide or accidental overdoses and all this kind of stuff people self-medicating just to you know um deal with the highs and lows or the mental health struggles and the drink and drugs come into it and everything and um and i've certainly had those struggles in my life but i think it's it's uh even though i've been sober four and a half years I st- it doesn't solve the problem. I still not completely. It does most of the time, and I, but I still found myself in a in a rut in the last few weeks, not sure, really knowing sure. where where to go next. So to uh, to to have your the conversations with you have been fantastic, and uh, I think oh, I'm glad I, to hear it. I know I wasn't. I know I'm not sure whether we were meant to go into that in this podcast, but I felt like it was important to say because I it's uh, uh, for all that. We've talked about um, both of us having mental health struggles and issues and 
all those things. Um, it's the blind can sometimes lead the blind. Um, so I think Absolutely. And uh, certainly, I think in this game, in terms of mental health issues, I think it takes one to no one is, is, uh, mm-hmm. is, um, is definitely uh, a very poignant thing. I think it's definitely... Well, I think, a... I think just even opening the conversation about it, because certainly as a classically trained musician, I mean, my university was nicknamed the Sausage Factory because it was renowned for just churning out musicians that would roll out into jobs in orchestras. And then all of that changed. And, you know, there's there's this kind of weird culture whereby, yes, you put yourself forward as the performer and you're giving of a, a different part of yourself every night. But there's another layer to that whereby you you don't feel almost like you're entitled to have any feelings of your own. Yeah. Um, because A, you feel vulnerable, but B, you don't want to be judged as unemployable or unhinged or incapable in any way when you spend, you know, hours and hours of your life honing your craft to then have somebody not only perhaps say oh well, that's not good enough or I didn't like that but actually then say oh but I mean look at the state of them you know it's almost like you're not allowed to have human emotion in any way and actually <laughs> suppressing all of that makes you less of a musician because that vulnerability is sometimes what actually unlocks the key to your music being more accessible and it's so much more common than anybody has let on until very recent years and I I personally feel like if there had been this openness when I was at university I might have coped with things a bit better like you know my dad dying at 15 and then I was at music college age 17 and I, I mean I had absolutely no way of processing that at all I just kind of went from the biggest most impactful trauma that I'd ever been through of losing a parent into a very adult situation of being at music college Music having been my saviour during a whole host of very difficult times um, as a teenager. And then it was something that was being criticised and I was having what felt like strips torn off me um, by saying, that's not good enough, do it again, do it again, do it again. And I had the most wonderfully supportive violin teacher, but then there there was a whole host of other criticism that I'd never come across before once I'd gone to music college and suddenly my safe place felt like the place where I was most vulnerable and there was nobody to talk to about that because you had to put on this front of being invincible and nobody's invincible we're only human this is what I I was quite intrigued when you were talking to me before about um the sort of rigidity of of the classical scene and the sort of the orchestral scene and having to sort of basically almost like smooth off your edges and kind of fit into a into a into a role within that and fit then into all, someone else's mold would probably yeah. be the way I'd put that but, but then watching you recently playing with Ian Prowse um on the tour with my brother and and he Ian obviously loves the kind of that he's coming from much more from a Celtic place so you have the freedom of expression there and the emotions coming through that is, I feel like that's almost, that's, I, I find that interesting. It's still within music, that one's really self-expressive and the other is, is almost teaching you to be exactly not that, that's as how I see it from the outside of it. So, you know, what yeah. would that, what, what would you think about that, that observation? How did you find, how do you find the two things having done both? Do you know, 
playing with Ian is the only place where I feel like I'm entitled to be me. Yeah. Because I'm an integral part of a band family whereby I feel like my own playing style and my own sound have developed over the years. I don't feel like I'm trying to kind of keep somebody else happy. I feel valued for who I am as the musician. Whereas within other facets of the industry, it's taken me a long time to feel like I could be that person. Yeah. Because there's so many other people out there who could do the job just as well as me. You know, it's that whole kind right. of sausage factory analogy that's there again. So you have to bring something to the table that makes you um, capable of being in that seat, but not be too over the top that you don't fit in within the ensemble. And yeah. I think part of being with Ian's band is that I, when I'm on stage, I'm, I'm the only violinist apart from at Christmas when Ian invites kind of absolutely everybody who's involved with the band <laughs> to have a proper knees up gig at, at, um, at Liverpool. But I'm, I'm allowed to just be me. And certainly on uh, the Costello tour, we just felt so lucky to be back on stage again, having had the tour cut short um, and then get, you know, locked in for 18 months with COVID. So the fact that we were able to go back out and perform and do that again just felt like such a privilege to even have that opportunity that there was no way I was going to waste a second of that. So I was kind of right. riding that real high from being back in big venues with lots of people with people that wanted to to hear us as well because you know it was really well absolutely but that, it, was a, it was a relatively short set but there was definitely two songs definitely on that in that set where you'd just be, be welling up because it's just the emotions of it you know like the be merseyside and, and home would be the two that would really and you you play a massive part in, in bringing that emotion to it and um the, that the, the great Ian's a great songwriter and, he absolutely um, is. but um you play such a major part in in bringing people coming out just saying you made me cry twice you know so many people are saying that and it's um it's that it's that expression and that palpable sense of of emotion coming through your playing and i think that's that it's definitely comes across what you're saying now you're saying where you feel yourself and you that self-expression is there you can you've got the freedom to do it when it comes across 100 percent and uh well that's and, that's good because i feel like now i try to be as authentic as possible given that that opportunity was taken away you know i was sat at my dining yeah. table for a year and a half and you know, was recording Ian's last album, which I see you're wearing the t-shirt of. Uh, I am wearing the t-shirt. I just thought I'd, uh, I thought I'd just throw that in there just to love it. wind you up. Love it. <laughs> I know I'm full on for the merch. Uh, yeah, I've to kind of record the album sat at this very table whilst pregnant with microphone on one side and a bucket on the other because I was being that sick. You know, it's like, <laughs> to, so to be back on stage just felt like such a privilege. I wasn't going to ever waste that opportunity. And it just felt yeah. like, ah, right, I'm back where I'm supposed to be now. Um, and like you say, we've gone from kind of the Costello tour back to performing in smaller venues. This is what, but... That's what I was going to ask you is post-tour, the post-tour blues. How have you, have you coped with them? Uh, not great, if I'm being honest, but 
I think I think there was a whole host of circumstances within that that kind of meant that I knew it was coming to an end. And then we'd had that little moment in the middle where we weren't sure that the tour was actually going to finish again. Yeah. Because of COVID. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then we were lucky that it did. We were very lucky that it did. Um, but it's the kind of the highs and lows of that. You come down from playing at the Hammersmith to then, oh, I'm back home now. Wow. The pace has stopped. It's that kind of juddering halt that you just don't expect. Yeah. So, you know, it's like you yeah. say, it's 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 riding those highs and lows and value valuing every opportunity that you get regardless of whether it's playing at somebody's wedding which okay might not be the biggest gig that you've ever played at but it's important to them they've asked you yeah. to be there so it's a privilege in that regard absolutely 100%. and then playing on a massive stage like the hammersmith or the symphony hall in birmingham whereby everyone has paid money for a ticket and it's their night out that night so you owe it to them to give the yeah. best possible performance that you can whilst also remaining um, authentic to yourself. You know, nobody, nobody should, should be under pressure to feel happy all the time, for example. But you do have that commitment of being at your work. Therefore, you have to honour the fact that people are there to see you and you have to shelve whatever you're feeling in order to give them the best experience possible. Absolutely. 100%, so, yeah. I'd say I'd say that's kind of kind of where I am up to with the the post tour blues, but <laughs> yeah. just uh, looking forward to getting back out on the road in September. And you're actually supporting Ian Putney. I played haven't played the half minute Putney for a long, long time. Um, we used to do that regularly with my brothers years ago, like twenty years ago, maybe wow. longer. But it was it was a bit from that end of London, that part of London. So there was there wasn't that many original venues where you'd go, and there's so much history in the Half Moon, and you see it when you go in there. So I'm really looking forward to that. It's going to be great. And uh, I've been talking to to Prousey about doing some kind of gig together at some point, but it it never uh, it never matured as matured until now. So I'm very excited about that because I'm a, I'm a big fan of uh, of his and 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 yours actually in fairness so, so it's going to be great and then um i'd like to um come and see some of those, uh, the other gigs on that tour as well if i can get down to them absolutely so people should go and buy their tickets for the uh, ian prowse tour um and uh, they're all on what they what's, what's it on amsterdam amsterdam website. music because if you type in amsterdam uh, for anything else you just get the city so yeah. <laughs> it's very much yeah, yeah, amsterdam-music.com yeah. so you can find it all on the, there the, oh. but, the, but the city isn't touring so no, <laughs> no. <laughs> it doesn't go anywhere ever really no <laughs> no you have to go to it that's yes how cities work yeah. thanks well, <laughs> well we've we're going to finish on that uh, geography lesson thank you so much for your time <laughs> <laughs> gone from mental health to geography and one fail swoop there so there, yeah. there you go well I'll, I'll never let it be said you don't learn anything no. <laughs> thank you so much for your time it's been massively appreciated well thank you for asking me an absolute pleasure to be here with you.